morning again. I'm surprised by the attendance this morning. You guys have done pretty good today. Today is a a study that I kind of like. It's a study about hope. And if there was a time in our culture, in our community, and in our lives where we needed hope, it's today. As much as it's always been needed. A couple of a couple of months ago, during the summer, I was privileged to go to uh, the Billy Graham uh, Retreat Center in uh, near Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, spent just about three and a half days there. It wasn't very long. But uh, one of the interesting things about being there, anybody been there other than myself, a few of you? If you go down kind of on the, the ground level or maybe the basement level, it depends on where you are, there's a, a beautiful display of all of the uh, the, of some pictures and some, some factual information about the life of Billy Graham himself, and then also a large display about the many crusades that God has given Billy Graham the privilege of doing over the years. And throughout those pictures and some of the facts that uh, are depicted up there on the walls, there are several sayings about Billy Graham himself, things that he has said, phrases that he has quoted. And one of the quotes was a quote that I actually took a snapshot of my picture. I took several. And this one quote sort of struck me very, very, not odd, but uh, very truthful. It was uh, kind of set me back a little bit. And I had to really think through uh, what he said. This is what he said. He said, I don't think people can live without hope. What oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to our survival in the world. Is it possible for us to live without oxygen? Couldn't live very long, could you? Well, I wonder if we see hope in similar fashion. Could hope be the oxygen of the soul that keeps us striving for the Lord because of the hope that we have in Christ? I want us to talk about that hope this morning as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, which is our foundational passage through this study in the oneness that we have in Christ. And I'd like to invite you to stand one last time. Let's get the circulation going, the coldness out of our legs and our spirits, and see if we can't, you know, do a little exercise here for a second. As we read from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 through verse 6. I'm going to read it for you out of the ESV. If you'd like to read along, the words are on the screen. Or if you'd like to follow along your Bible, that's okay. So in honor of the word of the Lord, let's read Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that we have today to stand in honor of the word of the Lord, your word. And I pray that you would help us understand how relative and how important hope is in our individual lives and in the corporate life of your church. We're one body because we have one Lord, and we share in the same hope. And I pray that as we study hope, that wherever we are, individually and corporately today, in our understanding of who you are and what our future is, that you would instill within us the hope that is necessary to progress us in you. Thank you for the hope that you bring during the holiday season called Christmas. This is the time of the year that we, as believers in your Son, Jesus Christ, who know that this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger nearly 2,000 years ago, came to give hope, not just to the world, but to the individual lives of those who would place their faith and trust in him. And for those of us who have done that, we have a hope that transcends circumstances and situations in life that would often rob us of our hope and cause discouragement to set in and render us ineffective for your glory. So Lord, instill hope within us today and help us to leave with a full understanding of that The Apostle Paul even prayed that this understanding of the hope that we have in Christ and our salvation is hard for us to grasp independently and apart from you on our own. We need an infusion, an enablement, an empowerment by your Spirit to transcend our concepts and understandings and personal beliefs so that we can fully realize and recognize and apply the hope that we have. 
in your son Jesus. So thank you for the hope that we have in him today. We ask that you bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You know, as I pray, that Christmas time is, in fact, a time of hope. If you think about Mary in Luke chapter 1, when she was visited by the angel and she was told that she would be the one that would bring the Christ child into the world, an angel said to her, Behold, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to participate with God. And what is going to be conceived in you is going to be conceived in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that child that is to be born will be called Jesus. He told her that the Christ child that would be born of her would be called Jesus. Savior. Messiah. The one that Israel had been hoping for and longing for for generations now is finally going to arrive. It was a message of hope. We know that Joseph in the Christmas story, as he contemplated on what to do about his betrothed, his, his fiancée who was pregnant with a child, he knew that he was not the father. He had not consummated the relationship. And he, in this distressed moment, he reflected on what he might do and how he might possibly divorce her and how he might maybe put her away. And in that reflection and contemplation, he went to sleep that evening and an angel in a dream visited him and he said to Joseph in the dream that he was going to be the father of the Messiah, that the child in Mary's womb was in fact a, a child that the Holy Spirit had placed there that she had not broken her vows to him. And that this child would be born and they were to call him Jesus and that he would save God's people from their sin. That is a message of hope. When you reflect upon the shepherds that are out in the field watching their flock by night, minding their own business, tending to their sheep, all of a sudden the darkness split open, an angel appeared, and he declared unto them that a Savior was to be born. And I think their words were exactly, I bring you good news of great joy. The Messiah is, has arrived. He's been born. And he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he's been placed in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem. And you must go see him. Drop what you're doing and check him out. It was a message of good news. It was a message of hope. Christmas is a message of hope. And we live today in a hopeless world that is looking for hope in, in the government. They're looking for hope in leadership. They're looking for hope in money. They're looking for hope in presents wrapped in, under a tree. They're looking for hope in many, many places. And all of those places, if the hope is not based and founded upon the person of Jesus Christ, their hope is really hopelessness. Because those things apart from Christ cannot produce, nor can they scratch the itch that dwells within their hearts for the hope that they long for that can only be found through Christ. So I want us to take a look at this hope that's described in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want us to see how the one phrase that's here where he says in the text, just, verse 4, he says, just as you were called to the one hope, that belongs to your call. Let's sort of dissect this phrase and let's sort of analyze a little bit and let's talk about four important concepts about hope as described in this passage. First of all, we see in the words, just as you were, we learn of the condition of hope. There's a condition here that precedes hope. And the condition is the condition of lostness. For without hope, a person is lost. But those who are lost are without hope. And here we find in this text that he says, just as you were. And the context and the idea of the text is simply this. These people already that he's writing to possess hope. They've already placed their faith and trust in Christ. They have already been saved from their sin. And as a result of that, their names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And they are already completely and totally saved. So they possess the hope that's found in the person of Christ. It's already a reality. But I think as you take a look at the text, he is going to remind them several times in the book of Ephesians that before they possessed through the person of Christ this hope that they now have in Christ, they were hopeless. They were without hope. And you see sort of a continuation of that idea in chapter 2, beginning with verse 11 through verse 12. Let's just read that for a minute. Let's look at the context that's there. 
He says in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, Therefore, notice what he's asking them to remember. Remember that at one time your Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying as he's writing to the Gentiles in the Ephesian church, you Gentiles before when you did not possess Christ were hopeless. They were hopeless because of their condition. Their condition was that they were sinners. And as sinners, they were alienated from God. As sinners, they were estranged to the truths and the understandings of what it meant to have hope in Christ. As sinners, as Gentiles, they were ignorant of the truth. And not only ignorant of the truth, they didn't possess because of their nationality as Israel did. They not possess the message. Why? Because the promised Messiah did not come to them. He came to the Israelite. And so Christ came to Israel. He came to the Jew. He proclaimed his message of salvation to the Jews. And so because of their nationality, they were aliens. They were strangers to all of the promises that are found through the Messiah and through the message of the gospel of Christ. They were lost. They were Prime examples of the Romans 3.23 that where it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They, they, they because of that sin, Romans 6.23 was the only reality they knew. That, that the wage of their sin, the consequence of their sin, the reality of that sin and their alienation from God. They were damned and doomed to a Christless eternity for, for not only in this life but in the future life, in the afterlife, after death. They were without hope as Gentiles. So what is, what is it that's going to bring them hope? Is it that they are going to become Israelites? Are they to embrace Judaism? Are they to embrace circumcision? Are they to become like the Jews and then accept Christ? Is that how they then possess the hope? And Paul is saying in this text, absolutely not. They don't have to be circumcised in the flesh in order to inherit the beautiful promises of the hope that comes through Christ. Becoming Jew or embracing Judaism is not the path to changing their hopeless state to hope. And what he says throughout Ephesians is simply this. I don't have time to read it. I wish we did, but we don't. But he says to the Jew that he's writing to in the the Ephesian church, he says, hey, guys, you guys have a false hope. The Gentile didn't have any hope, but you have a false hope. You see, their hope was in the covenant of God. Their hope was not only in the covenant that was made through Abraham with God, but their hope was found in keeping the law. And in spite of their best effort, they could not measure up to the standard of the precepts of the law. And so their hope, because of the covenant, they were putting their hope, hey, because we're God's special anointed people, and and even though we can't live up to the code, God's going to honor that covenant, we're going to be saved. And he says, no, you don't have hope. You are actually hopeless. You have a false sense of hope. And I'm convinced there are a lot of people today that have a false sense of hope. There are many today who have a hope. They hope that they're going to be saved. But because they hope that they're going to be saved, they have a a, a false hope. And that false hope is going to reveal itself at judgment. And they're going to learn that they are not, in fact, children of God. For doesn't the Bible say that on the end times, as the judgment seat of God begins, there are going to be some who say, but Lord, what about when I did that? And when I did this? And when I did this? And when I did that? And we even heal people. We did miraculous things. And he's going to say to them, depart, I never knew you. There are many today like these Judaizers who believe that their hope is based upon a covenant and in the work ethic that they were performing and say, guys, those people have a false hope. And what he's saying is that the, the, the Jew, the Judaizer, is no different than the Gentile because the Gentile never had the hope, never had the covenant, never had the special promises and privileges and relationships as a nationality. But the Jew, while they had all of that, they were uncircumcised in their heart. They had a circumcision of the flesh, but their hearts were far from God. And because their hearts were far from God, they were alienated from him. And as aliens also, apart from God, they too then became recipients, because of that false hope, to the wrath of God. The same wrath to the Gentiles is now being transferred to the Jew because they, while they had hope, had a false hope. So what Paul, in essence, is saying is this. 
The Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul is saying, whether Gentile or Jew, we are both alienated from God because of our sin. And in spite of our work ethic, we can never measure up to the standard of God. So therefore, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you place your faith and trust in the sacrificial Lamb of God who took upon himself our sins against the Father and died in our place, we can then be reconciled with God and escape then the condemnation for our sin against God. He's saying Jew or Gentile, what brings us together is the common hope. And virtually he says there was a condition that preceded hope and that was lostness. You know, I have a sometimes discussion with people that that sort of kind of goes around in circles from time to time and uh, people always say well how can a loving God send people to an eternal hell doesn't sound very godlike does it my answer to that is that a loving God doesn't send people to hell their sin sends them there and it, it if if I were to blame a judge for sentencing me for a crime that I rightfully committed? Is it the judge's fault or my fault for having committed the crime? And because of their sin, the wage of that sin is death. And without Christ, we are hopeless. But with Christ, we have hope. And so Jesus came to give us hope. And so we see the condition that precedes hope is a condition of lostness. That's what we want to call salvation. That brings us to the second point is there is a call now that precipitates hope. There's a call that must take place before someone can receive hope, before someone can have hope, before someone can profess hope. Uh, Hope within itself is not hope. If I hope in hope, then I'm hoping in the wrong thing. I must hope in the person of Christ and the work of Christ in order to to have the hope that is necessary. And here we see here that this hope then is precipitated then by a call because you cannot possess this hope in Christ until you first receive a call from Christ to embrace him as your Savior. And once you do that, then you possess hope. For unless you're saved, you cannot claim the hope that we have that's found only in Christ. He says in the passage, just as you were called just as you were called now these people were called these people responded to the call and they responded to the call individually while the letter is written corporately to the church to us today as well as the church in Ephesus this is an individual call your mom and daddy can't be saved for you they can't answer the call for you there are no grandchildren in heaven in that What I mean by that is your parents answer the call for your salvation and you're grafted in simply because they made the decision for you. Wouldn't that be great? There is a denomination in this city and throughout the United States, and it's a global denomination, that they believe that that, uh, saved, well, what they call saved, I don't consider what they say saved is what we say to save, but members of their congregation can get baptized not only for those who don't know Christ who are living, but also for those who are already dead. And they'll be saved. That's not anywhere in the Bible. It's an individual call. You must hear and you must individually respond to the call. We cannot do it for you. No one else can do it for you. It's something that you must hear. You must come to understand. You must have the personal conviction of the Spirit of God. And you must say yes to that call. Yes to that invitation. It's a personal, individual call. He says, you were called. Let's talk about the call. I remember when I was in Brazil. and uh, I think I've used this illustration before. And Dave and I got to talking about a pastor he knew that kept always using the same old illustrations throughout his whole time there. And, uh, you know, he knew what, but some of us are new and it's been quite some time since I've used this illustration. So just bear with me, okay? But in Brazil, uh, we used to just kind of roam around free in the neighborhood. Remember when times were like that? Your mom and dad didn't know where you were. They just knew you were out playing around. And in Brazil, we were flying kites, or we were shooting marbles, or we were playing soccer out in the streets, or there was a Baptist college across the street that we'd jump the fence and play on their soccer field. And so, it, you know, in order to save time, 
our house was kind of elevated above the street. And uh, so my dad would step out on this this porch that was around our house, and it was elevated about this high, and he would holler, Charles! Top of his lungs. And uh, you could hear it. And when I heard my dad call, I better respond. Now, my mother, sometimes, I could choose to ignore. Not a good deal either. Uh, But if dad were out of town... Punishment was always delayed. But when they called, I heard, I stopped what I was doing, and I answered the call. There was a moment, a time in your life when you were minding your own business, doing your own thing, and all of a sudden, God called you by name. John, Sue, Charles, whatever. And you heard a call. And if you don't get that call, you can't be saved. You can't just wake up one morning and decide that you're going to respond to the, to the invitation of God. You must receive a call. And the passage, and, and this one and many, many others throughout the Bible, are very clear that God must call us unto himself. And when we hear the plan of salvation, when we hear the gospel message about the Messiah, the Savior named Christ, and he convicts us of our sin and helps us recognize that without Christ, we are eternally lost and damned, and we then turn from our sin and turn to Christ, that is a work of the Spirit of God, and as, as God is calling us unto himself. It's an individual call. And the call that they are receiving here is a call of salvation. They've already heard the call, they've understood the message, they've trusted in Christ as their Savior, and they have heard it, and they have answered it, and now they are saved. It's a call to salvation. And he says to them, just as you were called. And that call that we responded to is what gave us the hope that we have. And unless you have that call, you can't have hope. Unless you respond to that call, you can't possess the hope that is ours in Christ. But once we answer yes to the call and we trust in Christ, the hope is ours. The hope is that we'll be saved from our sin. Because the Bible did say that all of us have sinned right? It said the wage of sin is death. But John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. And because of our acceptance of that call and that conviction of sin and the cleansing of the spirit and the seal of the spirit, we now are saved and we now have hope that transcends our sinful, rebellious, wretched life. You see, before we came to Christ, we were alienated from him because of sin. Recipients of his wrath and his punishment, deserving not only death, but eternal damnation. But God the Father, notice how Trinitarian salvation is. All aspects of the Trinity have a play in our salvation. God, it says in this text that we're about to read, God called us, he chose us. Christ redeems us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. Look at the text in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He's laying a foundation in chapter 1 for what he's about to say. He's helping the people that he's writing to understand that salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. And he's wanting them to understand and to recognize that this salvation was received because of a call for no fault of their own. God invaded their life and called them, and now the salvation they enjoy has been purely given to them because of the mercy and the grace and the love of God. And now notice what it says in verse 16 through 18. We'll skip down. I wish we could read all of it. We can't. Verse 16, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's praying. And in his prayer, he says, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your ears enlightened, He's praying that they would be enlightened 
Why does he want them to be enlightened? He recognizes and realizes that they, like himself, cannot understand the full measure of this beautiful, wondrous salvation that they possess unless the Spirit of God enlightens them. I mean, we can't just figure it out with our human minds, all of the beauty and all the wonder of our salvation. We need the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our understanding, to take us beyond our preconceptions and our prejudices. And he says, I want you to be enlightened. Notice that what does he want them? He says, this is what I want you to know. I want you to be enlightened so that you can have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's not talking about their hearts only. He's talking about their minds as well, that their understanding can be enlightened to know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? How can we fully measure and fully understand this beautiful salvation that we have apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives? We didn't imagine it before we came to Christ, and he called us and his Spirit enabled us to see our sin and Christ as a solution to our sin, and it was Christ who gave us the faith to embrace him now as our Savior, and it is he who continues to reveal to us what this glorious salvation is all about. You can't figure it out on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to do that. And he's saying here that he wants us to have the sure expectation that we are saved. This hope is that I know that I know that I know that I know that I am saved. I don't have to wake up in the middle of the night and wonder about it. And, and, and if you're wondering about it, you're confused. I like to use an illustration at a funeral that uh, often goes something like this. There were two ladies that were sitting in a, uh, a back of the pew of the service, and they overheard the pastor talking about the assurance of, of this person and that we know where they are. They're in heaven because of their faith in Christ. And the two ladies were overheard saying one lady to the other I don't know if I can be certain about where I'm going to go when I die I don't think anybody can be sure of that can you be sure can you be sure are you sure do you have assurance doesn't that give us hope that I know that I know that I know that I know it's not based upon my work ethic it's based upon a work ethic that's already been achieved and accomplished on my behalf through my faith in Christ it's already ours that's awesome uh, students over here I mean some of you got some final exams coming up maybe if you're in college and you study and when you go in you take the test and you hope that you make an A maybe you hope that you pass just hope that I pass and you've worked and you worked and you studied and you studied and you attended class and taken notes and you studied and studied and you go in and you take the class and you walk away saying, I hope that I made it. That's not this kind of hope. Paul talks about this kind of hope as a hope that's already a guarantee. It is already ours that I can know that I know that I know that because Christ is my Savior and my faith is a redemptive work on the cross, I can know that I am saved. That gives me hope in a hopeless world because people outside of Christ don't have that hope. Those of us in Jesus do. And so the call precipitates hope. Notice, let's look at the confidence, the confidence that promotes hope. Notice again, he says, to the one hope. Now, the hope here that he's talking about, first of all, is a call. And it's a call that precipitates or precedes hope. I must be called before I can have hope. But once I'm called, I, I know that I know that I'm saved. It talks about a call to salvation. But the same call, the same call, I'm going to say that again, the same call is not only a call to salvation, but it's also a call to sanctification. They, these are not two calls. They're one and the same. Because when I am called to salvation and I place my faith and trust in Christ, he then, in that same call, calls me to be like Christ. To exhibit the nature and the character of Christ. Because now I am in Christ. I am a new man, not an old man. And I don't no longer live in the flesh. I live in the spirit. I walk in the Spirit. I keep in step with the Spirit. I obey and I follow with understanding the Word of God that leads me into the likeness of Christ so that I can exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and the natures and the qualities of Jesus. For once I am saved, I am not only transformed in, the, in this beautiful creation, but He then continues to mold me and shape me. He adds and He removes stuff in my life and your life, if you're saved, that do not reflect the image, the nature, and the characteristics of Jesus. 
we can be sure that we're going to be transformed day by day, little by little. How does that happen? Well, Paul tells us in Down on Down chapter 4, notice in verse 20, it's interesting that uh, he talks about, first of all, in chapter 4, as we've already discussed a couple of Sundays ago, he says that we are to walk worthy of our calling, right? To walk worthy of our calling. And what were some of the characteristics that we talked about in walking worthy of your calling? In other words, you know, Christ died, so let's honor that. Christ gave his all, let's honor that. Let's don't cheapen what he did. Let's walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. We are called not only to salvation, but now in salvation, we are called to Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness, if you look at the text, is humility. He talked about gentleness. He talked about patience. He talked about love. He talked about unity, didn't he? But he goes on now further to describe what it means to walk in this incredible worthiness. He says in verse 20, chapter 4, but that is not the way you learn Christ. It's interesting, he's addressing these believers, and it's almost as if he's saying, hey, do you learn Christ this way? Ephesus was a pretty pagan city. I mean, we think that Wichita is, is pretty, pretty lost, and there's some pretty heinous things in our city, some things that we wish didn't exist. I mean, I pass one all the time on, on 47th Street. It's a strip joint out there called, well, I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I pray for its demise all the time. I pray that the people in there would go blind or that the Holy Spirit would convict them that what they're doing is wrong. Sometimes I'll pray that they go bankrupt and have to close their doors. Seriously, I pray against them all the time. I got my first nude email the other day at the church office inviting me to look at some photographs. It happens to all of us if you're on the Internet. Well, I don't get on the Internet, so I don't have the problem with that. Well, you get on the Internet, you're going to have issues with that. Talked to a lady the other day who said she keeps getting them every time she comes into her office because they they have a it's not it's bypassed their filter. And we live in a pretty tough world. Well, let me tell you about Ephesus. It was tougher than the world we live in today. They had a, a temple that was built to the goddess Diana. Now, Diana was a wicked goddess. They had temple prostitution. That's where people went to the temple to worship Diana, and they had sex in the temple. Don't you think that permeated over in the culture, the community? That kind of vile, nasty perversion? I mean, perversion was widely acceptable in Ephesus. It was no big deal for, for adultery and fornication and, and homosexuality and drunkenness and all kinds of vile behavior. And these people in the church at Ephesus were being saved out of that. They were new believers. And they were struggling in, in this culture, in this environment that was constantly pulling on them back to their old life. And he's saying, what I want you to do is you have a duty and a responsibility now. And the duty is that you need to put off the old and put on the new. That's what he said. Take off the old and put on the new. It's not an action Well, I take off the old and then, I, then I, later on I put on the new. But it's a simultaneous action the believer. Once you take it off, you automatically put on the new. You take off the old. It's a one-time activity. And we must constantly continue to do that. Notice what he says. You didn't learn Christ that way. You weren't taught that. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self which belongs to your formal manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23, and to the renewed and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of who? Of God. The likeness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because if you're like the Spirit, you're like the Son. If you're like the Son, you're like the Father. You're like the Son. You're like the Son. They're all three the same. They all share the same attributes. They all share the same characteristics. They all are like one another. You can't talk about one without referencing the other. It's, it's a one God concept. Not three, but one. So he's talking about this incredible transformation in which we are seeking now to take off the old and to put on the new. Um, let's do something real quick. I got time. I'm on point three. Hey, Larry, stand up a minute. Come on down here. 
You know I was going to pick on you today, did you? Amen. We should be less vocal. You got one of the best. Take off your coat for a minute. Let me borrow it. Does this coat belong to me? Does this, does this coat belong to me? I got married in a coat kind of like this. Seriously, I did. Didn't I, honey? I didn't try my suit on before I got married, and uh, I picked it up the morning of the wedding, and it was too late to alter it, and so all my pictures, I'm, I'm like this, but this doesn't belong to me. And, and for me to come to church and you see me, you say, what's up with Boswell, man? That dude's crazy. He's wearing things that, that are too small. They don't really look like they belong to him. And I've heard tell her, well, this isn't really mine. It's Larry's, and he loaned it to me. That's why I'm wearing it. What would you say? You're an idiot. Come on. Wouldn't you say that? Pastor's lost his marbles. David Harper left, and he's gone off the loony bin. Right? Well, this isn't my coat, so to wear it would be foolish. I have a coat that's, that's been designed by me. And it's, it's thank you, Brother Larry. It's, it's been designed by the Father. It's not a, a renewed coat, it's not a remodeled coat, it's not a retailored coat, it's a brand new coat. Because I don't care what a tailor might do with that coat, even if he tried to make it fit me, it, there's not enough material. And so what we have is we have something that's new. You have a new man. You're a new creation. He gave you a new coat. And he wants us to to put it on. And to wear it. And to honor it. And to walk and to live in a manner worthy of our call. And when we try to walk around in our old filthy rags, that's exactly what they are. And we're living a life that we're not intended to live when we, we're not fulfilling the purpose that God has for our salvation because our salvation should lead to sanctification. And sanctification is simply the process by which he is taking out what doesn't belong to me that doesn't look like Christ and he's putting in me what looks like Christ. And it's, a, it's an ever-present, continual activity that takes place every moment as long as I have breath on this planet and in this life. And the only way that that becomes a reality, the only way that the Spirit of God can facilitate that and the Word of God can make that a reality and Christ then, His likeness becomes a reality in my life is when I intentionally say no to the old and I continually put on the new and I exhibit the characters, the quality, the nature of of Christ and I display the fruit of the Spirit in Christ. What What are the dynamics of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, what? Goodness, gentleness, meekness. What's that last one? What's that last one? I don't like that last one, do you? And when we're exuding and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, We're manifesting the nature and the characteristics of the Son of God. How's your transformation been going lately? God's purpose that it become a reality in your life, it's a sure thing. Isn't it good to know that there's hope that transcends my present reality? I don't know about you, but I look in the mirror and I see some things that are starting to develop in my face. They're called blotches. I got a black thing going on right here, you know, and I could put, you know, my hair's getting gray. See what you guys are doing to me? It's because I'm getting older. And you can disguise it and you can camouflage it and you can cover it up. But that's not the real Me. How are you reflecting the real you? Lastly, let's take a look at the confirmation of the perfect. The confirmation that perfects hope. 
Hope has a confirmation. Hope has a completeness. There's a time in which we won't need hope anymore. He says, uh, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love, we're going to love in heaven. We're not going to need hope in heaven. Our hopes will all have been materialized. We don't need to hope in salvation. We don't need to hope in our transformation, our sanctification, because we'll be completely like Christ. So hope is, is not necessary in heaven. And he says here that belongs to your call. And that call is a call to glorification. There is a, a call that, first of all, is a call to justification, which is the beginning process of our salvation. Then after justification, we're justified in Christ to place our faith and trust in him, return to sin, repent of sin, and turn to him for our salvation. We then are to be sanctified daily, moving and adding things so that we can reflect the, the likeness of Christ. That's a lifelong process while we're on this planet. As long as we have breath and life, we're to be moving in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And then in the end, it's called glorification. That's when you will receive your glorified body. And some of you would like to say amen to that. I'm ready for that. Right? You'll be perfect as he is perfect. And you will look just like him. Notice in chapter 1 again, verse 13 and 14, it says... In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When will we fully acquire the possession of it? Not when we die or when Christ returns. We already have that reality now. Did you know that? We already have that. It's already a present reality. You see, we're not hoping in something that we hope to have. We're hoping in something that we already possess. It's something that's already ours. Well, how do you know that? Notice the word guarantee. Let me give you a definition for this word. I want you to write it down because this is critical in understanding what he's saying here. The word guarantee, and I'm going to read it for you. It is a legal commercial term. It's a legal commercial term. And it means that we have received the first installment of our inheritance. You already have the first installment of your inheritance. We talked about him last week. Who is what? The person of? The Holy Spirit. He is the first installment of your inheritance. In other words, God has already made a down payment. He's already made a deposit in you that that transformation is not only going to take place in this life, but it will be complete and it will be finalized because the Holy Spirit is our seal, right? He is our guarantee. And if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have the guarantee. If you don't have the guarantee, you don't have hope because you're hopeless because you're doomed. And it says here then in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, having the eyes of yours enlightened, we talked about that, that you, may know it, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Where do we get our inheritance from? Where? Guaranteed? Called by the Father, chosen by Him, redeemed through Christ, sealed with the Spirit. And the inheritance is already a present reality in our lives. We already possess it. See, we don't hope to possess something. We already have it. And so because we already have our future inheritance, we, we, we look at it and we hold it and we go, wow, I'm hoping in something that's already mine. It's easier to do that, isn't it, when you know that you already possess it? In Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 30. Is it 30? Yeah. Paul also talks about our inheritance in Christ and that he describes there as he does here that our inheritance is already a present reality. It's already a present reality. It's not something that I hope to have. It's something that I hope in because I already possess it, I already have it. In other words... My glorification is already in the process of already taking place, and so is yours. Because in Ephesians, he talks about the fact that God in his power, God in his power raised Christ from the dead and seated him, we talked about it last week, at the right hand of the Father, right? 
And one of these days, as he talked to the Ephesians, because they were having some insecurity issues about what was happening to, to, to the people in their fellowship, they were dying, and, and Christ hadn't returned yet. Paul had instilled within them such a hope that Christ was going to return, and someday they were going to receive their glorified body, that these believers were dying before Christ returned, and they were afraid that they were going to miss out on the return of Jesus because they were dying. And he said, I, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Because he said, one of these days the trumpet of God is going to blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. And on that day, when that happens, I don't care where you are in Christ, alive or dead, your dead bodies who have been decaying for years will all of a sudden come together and you will rise out of the grave and you will ascend to the heaven and in that process of ascending before God, your bodies will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, and you will be perfectly like him in every way. No more pain, no more deformity, no more carnality, no more flesh, no more lack of understanding. The beautiful, perfect, glorified self that God has purposed from you from the foundation of the world will become a reality. And what a glorious day that will be. That's your destiny. It's already ours. The trip's already been set. The time has already been set. The, 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 the journey has already been directed. And, and God the Father knows when that time's going to happen. And when that half time happens, there's nothing anybody's going to do that's going to be able to stop it. And your transformation's going to be complete. And you'll no longer look like you do today. But I hope you look a little like you do today. Because when I get to heaven, I want to look you up. I want to recognize you. I want to embrace you. And I want to say, isn't it great to see you fully transformed? God's not through working on you. It is not through working on me. But one of these days, he'll come to that completeness. And we'll be fully transformed the likeness of our Savior. And we'll look just like Jesus. That's our hope. An expectation. Not a hope that we hope to hope, but a hope that's already ours. It's guaranteed. It's sealed by the Spirit, promised by the Father. And all the work that's been made possible for this to happen was through Jesus. And it's because of our faith in Him we have hope. So do we have a reason to be hopeless? So I ask you, what is your condition today? Do you have hope? Do you know the person of Jesus Christ who gives you the hope that surpasses all understanding? Is God telling you to make a decision about your hopelessness today? Hope is not built upon a circumstance. It's not relying upon a situation. It's not hoping that things are going to improve. Things are the way they are because God has ordained them. And, and the only hope that we have really and truly in this life is found in Christ. People will let you down. Your life group may let you down. Your church may let you down. Our government will let us down but not God. It's almost as if Paul is looking up and he's seeing his inheritance, but he's looking beyond his inheritance and he sees God. As he sees God, he sees God because he knows God in all of his power. He's sealed our inheritance and he's made a promise. And what God promises, he always delivers. Let's pray.
Good morning. We have, again, the opportunity to celebrate believers' baptism. And this morning, we have Tosany. And Tosany, I've been talking about what baptism is all about. And we talked about it's joining Jesus' team. And she wants everybody here and everybody around the whole world to know that she's on Jesus' team now. Tosany, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be yes. your Savior and your boss? You have. If you are here this morning as part of Tosany's family or part of her life group, would you stand? Tosany, because you've asked Jesus to come into your heart and to be your savior and your boss and you want everybody to know that you're on his team, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. This is Jordan, and if you're here as part of Jordan's family or his life group, would you stand this morning, please? Jordan and I had an opportunity to talk a few weeks ago about what it means to ask Christ into your life to be Savior and Lord. And Jordan, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss? I have. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life.